This is Steve Goodrich, known on the trail as Bird Shooter, and this is N2 Backpacking, a podcast for both hikers and backpackers. Hello, backpackers. It's Bird Shooter. And on episode 53 tonight, I speak with Amos from the Backpacker Diaries. You may have seen his YouTube channel, where he documents multi-day and multi-week backpacking trips that are well within the reach of most hikers. Uh, in his videos, Amos does a great job of bringing the trail to your living room. And we're going to zero in on a recent trip that he took on the Sawback Trail. The uh, Sawback Trail is a 74-kilometer or 46-mile backcountry trail. It's located near Banff in the Canadian province of Alberta and within Banff National Park. Uh, it passes many high alpine lakes with phenomenal views and is less crowded than many of the other Banff trails, offering uh, backcountry hikers a great deal of solitude. In the show, we discuss permits, campsites, wildlife, insects, and weather, uh, as a bonus, Amos talks food. He's a professional chef and has some great suggestions for your next backcountry adventure. So listen in and add a new backcountry trail to your wish list. Here's episode 53. Uh, this is Bird Shooter. I'd like to welcome Amos Pruden from the Backpacker Diaries to the show. He has a YouTube channel that documents numerous and interesting short and long distance hikes in the U.S. and Canada and is also a professional chef. So if you are lucky, you might even get some tips on tasty and lightweight backcountry meals. Amos, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bird Shooter. Happy to be here. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, and you're sitting in a car doing an interview, uh, um, I guess, where you're near Fish Lake National Forest. Is that right? Yeah, I'm on the border of Fish Lake National Forest here. So yeah, that's where I'm at tonight. Yeah, and, and Fish Lake is in Utah. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, you can kind of think of it as being South Central Utah. So it's it ends up being about what an hour northwest of Capitol Reef. So it's as far as des Utah destinations go, it's actually a shorter drive from Salt Lake City than um, the drive to any of the national parks here. But yeah, it's something that uh, it's a place where I went did some backpacking a little over a year ago and. Uh, Really enjoyed it. Really stuck out. Um, it was as a memorable trip. So I feel fortunate to uh, be living and working here this summer. Yeah, and I'm guessing you don't have a lot of humidity that we get here in the south. So that's got to be a plus too. Do you get a lot of people from the east coast that come out there? Not that I've met yet. This is kind of this particular area where I'm living and working. It's according to the the owners that I've chatted with about this yeah it's mainly folks from the local counties especially uh, wayne county here in utah which is really the county that's between here and capitol reef national park so that the um yeah the like tory and loa and big now little places like that that most people probably haven't heard of but um yeah it's this is kind of a, a nice little getaway for them. But then certainly there's people coming here with boat trailers and stuff from further away. I don't know that I've met anybody from out of state though yet, but uh, 
yeah, uh, after, you know, I spend a season here, maybe I will meet some people from further away. We'll see how it goes. Well, it sound, I mean, it sounds like a, a hidden little gem for those that are from outside of Utah. Are you from Utah originally? No, I'm actually from the Seattle area. Bellevue, Washington is on the east side of Lake Washington. Uh, yeah, with that lake kind of separating, yeah, the the main, you know, city from the suburb, which has now really become more of its own urban hub as the headquarters of Microsoft and other various corporate headquarters. But um, yeah, so I came out here initially for the Olympics or to Utah in general, initially for the Olympics back in that winter of 2001, 2002, just to check out the skiing and be around the sort of excitement that the Olympics bring and really enjoyed my time here, left for a few years, came back, what, I think in 2005 and stayed for a few more years, left again for, I think, five or six years. And yeah, I guess long story short, I've been, I, I, after coming back here in 2015, yeah, I've actually spent more winters here than I haven't since then. So, um, yeah, it's it's a great place to be for those who are happy to do the sort of hospitality work that has the shoulder seasons in between to go on various adventures. And Utah certainly has, or the not just Utah, but the Intermountain West has a lot to offer in that respect. Yeah, you know, so so to back to the Olympics, I was actually at the um, trials in Deer Valley for the uh, the aerial um, event in the Olympics. The, the the people that would actually make the Olympics that year. Uh, and so that would have been oh, what, yeah? that. Yeah, that was uh, it was held New Year's Eve. Um, so the Olympics that year were 2002. Is that correct? Yeah, I was not far away. I was I was in Park City that that winter working on the other side of Deer Valley. But yeah, I was I don't know if you ever if you got a chance to explore Deer Valley at all. But there's but the Olympics were held at the and some of the other competitions are still held at uh, the base lodge there called Snow Park Lodge. And then there's kind of a mid-mountain lodge called Silver Lake Lodge where I was, was working both winters I was there. Yeah, and, and that, that whole experience was amazing. I mean, that, that I, can ex I can very much understand why you'd want to be there for the Olympics. You know, of course, Atlanta had it in 1996 and Atlanta exploded after the, uh, the Olympics. I'm sure your area did as well. Um, but uh, yeah, did, 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 you get, did, did you get to check out the Atlanta games also? Yes, I did. I actually moved to Atlanta the very day that the Atlanta Olympics ended. And that was after I did a cross-country road trip for um, about two or three months. Uh, but you couldn't find housing in Atlanta. I was getting ready to go to grad school here. And so um, I, I couldn't move until the Olympics basically were ending because there was nowhere to live. I mean, even people that lived here were renting their houses out. So it, it is, it is. I mean, to your point, right, to be uh, a participant in the Olympics, is it is really, it's exciting, right, to be there when it's all going on especially if you're not just there for a couple of days, if you're there for the whole thing. But anyway. Indeed. Now I was, of course I, I was working most of the time, but I did have a couple of days to, of course, as you know, as an employee of the resort, I had some ski privileges. So I do remember going to ski over in that area near snow park lodge where that those events were being held. And I remember having to go through metal detectors they had near where the St. Regis hotel now is, it's, is located. It's you now they had a tent set up with metal detectors because this wasn't that long after nine 11. Right. So, you know, security was on high and, 
Yeah, that was kind of an unusual thing, have, having to, yeah, you know, have the wand waved over your, you while you, you're, you know, in all your ski gear. Um, but, yeah, I did get to see Johnny Mosley do his dinner roll uh, about a mile away. <laughs> yes, that's on, right. On, he, on, yeah. he, got, he got the gold that year, correct? I'm not sure what, how he meddled, but, uh, yeah, that, that was exciting. I mean, it, <laughs> I probably should have brought binoculars. I would have had a better, you know, vantage point because there was this cat track between – snow park lodge and where st regis hotel is now but you could kind of like uh you know slowly you know snow plow your way down and kind of pretend like you're skiing but you're really just there kind of you know looking at the act the olympic action with from your lift ticket you know um but they and they were trying to discourage people from doing that and keep, keep people moving along so they wouldn't be piling up there you know but uh yeah it was still uh a nice opportunity to do that. And a couple of the chairlifts, I think the Carpenter chairlift and the Silver Lake Express chairlift went like, it just had the, the greatest view of the aerials themselves. I don't know if you remember that from the, I guess you were sitting in the bleachers. Is that correct? I was, saw the aerials or? I was actually standing at the very base where they were landing. It was unbelievable. I mean, um, wow. yeah, the courage it must take to do that. But, you know, I, I don't want to get completely off track, but I should ask you because I, I, I saw some of your videos and I yeah. noticed I noticed you spent a lot of time. Well, I shouldn't say a lot of time, but you, you have what I thought were extremely interesting videos of uh, snowshoeing into the backcountry and some of the, the yurts that are in Utah. Do you, you want to talk about that for a minute? Because I really enjoyed those videos that to me, especially being an East Coast guy. It doesn't get all the snow and doesn't get that kind of scenery. That looked super fun to me. Indeed, yeah. Well, it all kind of started with uh, a hiking buddy of mine named Inga who has some yurt experience. And, uh, yeah, leading into that winter, we were kind of talking about, hey, we should get a group of friends together to go, you know, check that out. There's uh, happens to be a organization called the Utah Nordic Alliance, of, or the acronym is uh, spelled tuna, you know, so people, people call it the tuna yurt, but <laughs> anyway, it's up there. Yeah. It's up there, uh, towards the Uintas off of Mirror Lake highway. So this, this would be East of park city. Um, and in any case, uh, member, it's a yurt that's available to members and yeah, on top of the membership, they have, I think different pricing for midweek versus weekend. And the year after I did it, which was just, you know, like the winter of 2017, they implemented some like an additional step where you you have to be somehow like certified or trained to use it, something like that. And um, I haven't that or for people that haven't used it before. So I, that's that's not something that I've um, done yet. But maybe I would I mean, personally, I would be, still be able to get in there seeing as I've used it before. Um, but since I've let my membership lapse, I don't know whether I'd be, you know, welcome to do that or not. But, uh, so yeah, it is something that, uh, is available to the general public if, you know, if they pay the membership fee and I guess jump through a couple other hoops. There are other yurts in Utah that I have yet to try. Um, some of which book up, I guess, right when they become available. Um, I mean, even on Airbnb, if, if any of your listeners are, uh, keen on Airbnb. I know there's, I remember seeing one there um, for rent on in like the Soldier Summit area south of here, kind of on the way to Price or, you know, central Utah. But um, 
Yeah, as far as that experience goes, yeah, it was it was a real treat. It was uh, set up really well with both propane and uh, a wood stove. We didn't use the propane at all, but we really enjoyed being able to use the the wood stove to melt snow and make water that we could then filter, you know. And um, being as how it was just a single night trip, we were able to, you know, travel a little more luxuriously as far as bringing, you know, full on you know, whole foods that weren't dehydrated and stuff like that. I know that uh, I've been just reading other trip reports of the tuna yurt that if people can afford to take a couple of nights there, then you get to have, you know, that sort of zero day to explore and do more backcountry adventuring, which would be great to do someday. I don't know if this winter, this past winter would have been the best year to do it since we had a lighter snow year out west here, but uh yeah, we certainly felt fortunate that the trips that we booked ended up being, yeah, it was a great snow. Yeah, the snow was in pretty good condition both day, both times, actually. So, yeah, we, we felt fortunate that, uh, yeah, there was plenty of snow. And uh, this particular tuna yurt that uh, you're asking about that I, you know, share on my channel there, it has enough people for eight to fit but realistically i think four adults would probably be the the sort of comfortable comfort comfortable maximum if you know what i mean yeah and it, look, it looks like you guys had the place to yourself right you didn't have to i mean you basically reserve it you get the night it looked like you guys spent a couple nights there from what i could tell in the video is that true yeah in this well in, in our case it was just the one night in both cases i, I think i spent a night there in february with a party of four and then again in late March, actually, with uh, just just a party of, of two, and yeah, in both cases it was just just a single night. But still, you can you know it's still very worthwhile just with the single night. And basically, the way that they have it set up is they have like a padlock. At least at the time, maybe they've changed it, but they had a padlock on the outside, and they'll provide you the combination after you make your booking type of thing. And it's just, but it's, it's really well set up with like a privy that's within, you know, an easy walk. And yeah, it was fairly clean. We found it. And uh, the nice thing about Utah is that there will be these sort of weather windows, you know, these sort of dry, war dry and warm spells where even as early as March or maybe February, you know, there's, Conditions are great for doing backpacking down south. So it's the nice benefit of another nice benefit of being in Utah to enjoy that type of thing, even in, during the winter months. Yeah. So I, want, I wanted to ask you because, I, you know, I watched a number of your videos and I noticed in some cases you travel solo, but in some cases you travel with others. Um, what, what is more, I mean, what do you do more frequently just out of curiosity? And I appreciate the enjoyment of both, um, situations so just curious indeed yeah i mean how that breaks out for you indeed well i would say that probably as much as 90 percent of my trips are solo and it's definitely a different type of thing and yeah well i certainly i enjoy it both ways it's I kind of a symptom of just having these weird stretches of time off, you know, and having just not knowing that many people that have my same schedule. And there's, there are times when it might be like a short notice. Oh, all of a sudden I have three days off, you know, in the middle of the week. And um, I've never, I'll, I'll put it this way. I've never been one to uh, have that 
the solo aspect discouraged me from going and you know, I'm very comfortable traveling alone and I'm well set up with uh, my uh, podcast to keep me company and <laughs> and uh, you know I have my solo what is what is it the, the tent that I use the REI quarter dome I think that uh, you know is the perfect size for one person and uh, light enough to not be too much of a burden so yeah I'm I'm pretty comfortable both ways I mean that said I just got off the trail yesterday from uh, an overnight trip with a friend of mine in, in the Wasatch Range. That was a real treat. It was the first um, time I had had company on the on a backpacking trip in a while. So really enjoyed, of course, having that company as, as well. Are you saying that you may have actually listened to an N2 backpacking podcast in the backcountry? Is that what you're telling me, Amos? Yes, I can confirm absolutely that I've yeah, been listening to to uh yeah I'm, i think i'm pretty well caught up on all of your episodes unless there's a recent one that i haven't listened to yet but uh not, yeah not, I can, it, not, not not until this one comes out i guess not i guess not but uh but yeah you're definitely one of my favorites uh bird shooter so uh, yeah thanks for uh, taking the time to produce these yeah no i appreciate it and i really enjoyed looking at um at your uh, your videos through the backpack backpacker diaries which we should talk about now um, hey, so let's talk about your series for a second. It's on the YouTube channel, which I think the Backpacker Diaries is a, a appropriately named uh, title because that's exactly what it is. So you, you have five seasons now, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I'm working my way through the fifth season. If Yeah, and, and basically every season had been like, a, you know, within a calendar year except for seasons four and five uh, last year uh, 2017 was an especially long season for me because I took I basically skipped the summer job and just went on like an extended sort of section hike of the Appalachian Trail and and with that I decided to split 2017 up into two seasons but yeah I do intend to have season six be this current year that we're in like the whatever adventures I'm enjoying at the moment, yeah, I plan on putting together in uh, a season six. Yeah, and what section, just out of curiosity, on the uh, Appalachian Trail did you hike? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, my buddy from uh, North Carolina, actually, um, he was uh, had finally found the time to, to go, and I kind of, I guess, artfully invited myself along because I had done, a, you know, some various other backpacking trips with him, and we started – from Pauling, New York. Okay. Because it's, yeah, because we started like, what, just I think a year ago last week. So yeah, June 15th. And uh, and then that's a great place to start, you know, for a mid-June, you know, sort of launch. And it's really convenient to fly into New York City and then take the train north up to Pauling. Yeah, And definitely. yeah, we made it. Yeah, uh, I, I ended up making it to Gorham, New Hampshire. So not, I mean, almost into Maine, but not quite. I would love to go back and, you know, complete Gorham, New Hampshire, you know, northbound. So at least I can say I've, you know, done the new, the New England section. And also because I've heard, you know, incredible things about the Maine section with all uh, my wilderness and whatnot. Yeah, phenomenal. I love Maine in general. Actually, the whole New England section was my favorite for the record. Indeed, yeah, I've 
I feel, I mean, I've been pretty good about cherry picking, you know, small pieces of the Pacific Crest Trail as well. So I guess for, for those that aren't quite as ambitious as a through hiker, you know, cherry picking as a section hiker is, is pretty good. But that, that said, it, I mean, it, the 440 miles uh, of that stretch, yeah, I guess that comprises 20% of the trail. So there are, there were some tough parts. I mean, with the, with the mud of Vermont and uh, uh, maybe some other sort of, you know, buggier sections of Connecticut, if I remember correctly, but yeah, it's um, yeah, it was, it was a great experience. My first, you know, long, trail experience obviously as you know as you as you know full well it's a very social trail so that's uh an excellent feature of the at as well of course yeah and i you know one of the things i really liked about your videos you're you know you're really good about kind of pumping out a concise eight to ten minute sort of uh piece that introduces you to a hike it gives you a kind of feeling for the trip um I really liked a lot of the editing, editing that you did there. So I'd like to zero in on a specific trail, if you don't mind, because the Sawback sure. Trail in Banff National Park, that to me looked yeah. like, um, I mean, you know, let's be honest. There's a lot of people that listen to this show. There's a lot of people in general that just don't have the time to take six months off. It's just not doable for a lot of reasons. But the, the Sawback yeah. Trail looked within reach for a lot of people. What it was, is it about 50 miles? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It's something like 74 kilometers, but which, which comes, yeah, just short of 50 miles. And I took a little longer to do it than other people typically do. I've, I mean, I've heard of, I, I, I'd heard of people doing it in three, over three and four nights. I did take a, a fifth night cause I had the time and you know, was okay with sort of, uh, I, well, you know, I, I do tend to travel at a more leisurely pace than like a typical, uh, through hiker, you know, that's pumping out 20 miles or more a, a day. So yeah, I was fine with, uh, stretching it over five nights and, uh, yeah, getting, a, getting to see maybe a little more or yeah, just, just travel, you take more of a leisurely pace, you might say. Yeah, and with the backpacker diaries, you have a lot of very good videos, but I especially liked the Sawback Trail because it's a place that I haven't been that I'd love to go. And you did this trail last fall in August of 2017. Is that correct? Yeah. And it actually wrapped up on September 1st. So it was kind of, yeah, the, the tail end of September, August going into, yeah, September 1st. Correct. And, and for the listeners, this is near Lake Louise, which is a skier in Banff, uh, Alberta, Canada. Um, yeah. It's all within Banff National Park. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that, that yeah, that's that's correct. And there are people that'll do it northbound. They'll start at the a place called Mount Norquay. It's a ski resort that's on the north side of the town of Banff. Um, so yeah, I definitely came across uh, uh, people going northbound and you know wrapping up the trip at Lake Louise there, as well as going southbound. Yeah, and did you spend any time in the town of Banff at all, or were you pretty much just there to backpack and you were gone? Well, I was on a family sort of reunion of sorts that we had in Canmore, which, as you may know, is next door to Banff. And, yeah, if I remember correctly, the only real time I spent in Banff was going to get my, my permit for the, for the backpacking. Um, and it was at least last year. I, I maybe the rates may have changed for this year. But basically it was about – ten dollars 
Canadian, mind you. So these are Canadian dollars. But yeah, they end up costing about ten dollars for the application or the registration, and then ten dollars a night thereafter. And I'm not sure if that's per campsite or per person, because um, it was all the same to me as a as a solo trip. But uh, so yeah, it ended up running about sixty bucks, which is less than I've heard, which is less costly than I've heard uh, about other trails in Canada. The I forget I forget what the trail is called on Vancouver Island. Oh God, that's a great one. That is the um, is that the I think it's called the West Coast Trail. Yeah, yeah, something like that, and and that one's even more costly than that. But um, hey, and for the listeners, case, for the for the listeners, quickly, the West Coast Trail is an old shipwreck trail. So when the ships would wreck really? in the 16, 17, 1800s, um, there was this trail that was built for anybody that crashed on the shore to get out, and then over time it was used for other reasons. But I, I've always wanted to do that one as well. Another really interesting um, Canadian trail that uh, is on my, my list when I start getting more time. Um, I actually Absolutely. made it to, I actually made it to Banff in 1998 and we intended to hike in the very area that you were in. And uh, we ended up doing a multi-day float trip for fishing on some of the rivers there. And we ended up spending a bunch of time in town and had a great time, but it is an absolute beautiful area. And by the way, that 1998 trip can be heard in a previous podcast, um, uh, one of the summer road trips. But um, I, I fully appreciate right. why why you would want to go to that area. It's it's phenomenal. Well, it must be an amazing place for a float trip. I'll have to look up that uh, podcast episode you're you're talking about. Yeah. So one of the things I noticed in in your hiking, there's a there are definitely times where you're in the trees. Uh, but there's lots of lakes and there's lots of open hiking where you can see for miles and miles. Um, now, I, I guess you get that in, in Utah, too. But that that had to be um, a great experience for you when you were hiking through there. And did you have a chance to do any fishing was the other question that immediately came to mind when I was watching your your videos. No, I didn't bring a pole. And I, I'll, I'll admit that I'm not much of a fisherman, which is strange for somebody who's living and working where I'm at here because it's such a popular fishing area. But, uh, yeah, I, I've tried fishing uh, a couple times over the years just with friends as like a social thing. And I don't know, it, it just didn't appeal to me so much. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm carrying enough other weight, <laughs> enough other, you know, gadgets and doodads that, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to not uh, have to, uh, you know, carry a pole with me with, you know, cause I, I tend to set up myself pretty well with the dehydrated meals and, you know, probably more snacks than I need. So from a, you know, food standpoint, um, I'm pretty comfortable as well. Yeah. And I want to come back to your dehydrated meals because as a professional chef, I watched some of your videos. I was impressed with, um, you know, the meals that you packed. So I definitely want to talk about that, but let's let, I just wanted to finish on the saw back because it fascinated me. Um, and, yeah. and I'm, I'm secretly building this list of trails that I want to do through my life, right? And this definitely made my list. You, you compare the Sawback to the Glacier National Park. Um, yeah. I'm just kind of curious to get your, I mean, because I've been to Glacier. I haven't been to the Banff National Park like you have. How, how do you, can you just give us a few kind of takeaways between the two? Well, I found that the uh, permitting was less of a hassle at Banff. Maybe the that particular trail was in less demand than the places I've been in Glacier. I mean, 
the permitting system itself is a little more restrictive, uh, you could say, with uh, basically a glacier, you pay for a reservation um, that's non-refundable, by, by the way, if they grant you your, your permit, then that, uh, then that fee um, is non-refundable. And then you have to go there in person a day, and your reservation is not the same as having the permit, right? You have to show up and pick up your permit a, like a, up to a day in advance of when you're blast off, you know, when you're going into the backcountry. Um, so what can happen as, and that happened to us last year too, is the, um, the backcountry office can basically close the backcountry in a set, in a way that uh, basically, you, you know, you don't get your money back, you know, and then you have to, um, find some other option which my uncle and i fortunately did we were able to do some day hiking nearby and then show up the next day and we're fortunate enough, fortunate enough to still get a route that worked for us rather well actually um so that's not something that happens in canada uh, they don't uh limit it they're not as restrictive in that sense i don't know i hope that makes sense but uh yeah i was able to get my permit like earlier in the week i don't know four like three or four days in advance um, and then, yeah, with that permit in hand, yeah, I was allowed to go in, I guess, at my own risk, right? Um, uh, regardless of the, uh, of the conditions. Um, so let's see, with, uh, what are the other differences? I know that the huckleberries, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't seem like a big deal, but it actually is, is, a yeah. <laughs> I, I noticed sorry, it was, I noticed it was a big deal for you in the video. You were extremely excited about the huckleberries in the uh, in the video yeah well once you once you put, you taste them you know after you know chugging up you know a, a huge you know gain of the thousands of feet or whatever it's it's a real nice you know treat that mother nature can provide there and uh yeah so admittedly i i went on a rampage a couple times with uh you know where my fingers turned blue and i was just kind of like <laughs> probably having more than my fair share um, at, at both of those, you know, both Glacier and, and Banff. And I didn't, it wasn't until after that happened that uh, I met uh, um, somebody who worked for the park service staying at the uh, the ranger cabin there on the last night that, uh, you know, I asked him, so what is the policy? And he said, well, you know, here in Banff, we save our berries for the, the wildlife. So, yeah, with, with that, I kind of, uh, yeah, learned after after the fact, you know. <laughs> after after the damage was done, I guess. Yeah, now, I mean the train looked looked amazing there. How do you compare to the, uh, the just the the views and the lakes and how do you compare that to Glacier? Well, that what's it called? Hole in the wall. That area between Boulder Pass and Brown Pass in Glacier. I mean, the, yeah, there's there's a uh, really good reason that my uncle has gone back. I think that was the fourth time he was there. Um, that uh, the trip that I profiled um, from August of last year. I mean, yeah, it, it's pretty exceptional scenery and the sort of landscape and cloudscapes that sort of can enhance that, along with the uh, the, the campsite there at Hole in the Wall. It's pretty special. It's uh, but yeah, again, it's 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 higher demand. It's it's more more difficult to get. I mean, my uncle had to plan ahead. Well, actually, I guess that was the permit that we that we lost. But I guess. We really, I, I really just got lucky I'm on my way back. I mean, I guess the other strategy one can take to book the more desirable campsites 
is to show up, you know, a day up to a day ahead and just have that be towards the end of the route, right? Whatever the desirable campsite is, whether it's hole in the wall at, at Glacier or what's it called at Mount Rainier. There's one called Indian Garden that's exceptionally difficult to get for similar reasons. But if you put that towards the end of your route, you know, if it's like, you know, on night number five, six, or seven, or, or whatever, you know, you're going to increase your odds of getting it because, you know, others haven't uh, had the chance, or it's, it's less likely that others have, have been able to book book it that way, you know, so far out. Um, so I guess that's another strategy to sort of um, maybe get the most out of the, <laughs> the, the permitting. So you're asking me to compare, like, kind of choose a favorite between Glacier and Banff? Or do you just trying to use that for like a comparison of the scenery? I'm kind of curious of both, actually. Um, you know, I mean, if you had to pick between the two, what would you say? Well, it's it really varies depending so much um, on what part of the park you're in. I mean, um, let's see. Yeah, you know, from driving through there in the Banff area, or yeah, floating through there, I, I think you said also. I mean, it's just the uh, the ridge lines that are visible from the Trans Canada Highway there—it's just so sort of grandiose and overwhelming, right? I mean, it's—it's it's kind of like up in Canada there near Banff. It's kind of like the Grand Tetons, but then it just keeps going and going, right? The Canadian Rockies are really, you know, a special sight to behold. And maybe you could say that um, for the entire, or or for much of the uh, Continental Divide scenery, at least, you know, glacier northwards right um but yeah there's something about the continental divide that really makes for uh quite a uh um, a rugged sort of aesthetic there with the jagged peaks um yeah uh my canadian friend chose i mean after hearing my comparison she thought that uh yeah banff was preferable to glacier but yeah. uh, if you talk to my uncle but but if you talk to my uncle i'm sure he would say well you know, he'll take that's actually that's the only place he ever backpacks anymore. <laughs> so, yeah, he's ruled out all the other options. So as far as I mean, I, I enjoy both so much. It's, it's pretty tough to pick a favorite. I mean, if my uncle invited me for, you know, to join him again in Glacier, I would certainly, you know, do my best to join him. But, uh, yeah, I would love to go back to Banff as well and see what's there. It's, I mean, the trail system in Glacier, it seems maybe a little more like cared for it's like um like they put more into the maintenance aspect of it i mean one thing about the sawback trail is that there was a very there was there was a section that was quite vague and sort of you know required some um some route finding chops i mean fortunately that it was also you know fairly close to um a creek you know or you know a drainage the whole time so one even without gps or a map one could just sort of listen for the creek and sort of managed that way but um yeah it's it's tough to pick a favorite because i've enjoyed both so much um uh but now, uh, now, now yeah you, I mean, when you were on the sawback though you were dealing with forest fires correct and and weren't you you were alone though when in the video that i saw you, your uncle was not with correct. you is that correct yeah yeah there was some there was some degree of wildfire smoke at both parks last summer at least during that latter half of august so yeah i'm not sure exactly where the smoke was coming from but i know that uh british columbia in particular got especially hard hit by wildfires and i, I think that was 
a big factor with the um, with Glacier as well. I mean, a lot of the smoke that was blowing into Montana last year was, was coming from BC as far as I know. Um, so I didn't get close. I mean, I, I wasn't close enough to see any flames anywhere last year, but, uh, yeah, certainly the smoke was, uh, evident in both. Yeah. And it looked like it was impacting your hike, but, um, not to the point that you had to get off the trail, right? Correct. Yeah. I mean, maybe I was breathing a little more heavily, but, uh, but to be honest, the like the wildfire smoke that I've had to breathe in places like Yosemite or the Ansel Adams Wilderness there right next door, if you're familiar with the John Muir Trail, yeah, that the year I was doing a, a small little piece of that, um, yeah, it was much more uh, intense, I guess you could say. Yeah, you know, one of the other things I noticed about the um, video was that you had some thermal features in there. I saw some ink pots, which, I mean, they're... Oh, yeah. You know, obviously, you get down to a place like Yellowstone, they're they're frequent. Um, but were those legitimate, like thermal features, or were they not underground um, Yellowstone type activity? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, well, they weren't. I forget the the temperature, but it's not like um, a hot springs. I think it's more of like a cold springs, or maybe just kind of a a medium temperature springs. <laughs> And it's something, it's, I understand it's a feature that back in the old days that people would go and swim in there, you know, and kind of wait around. But, you know, after enough time passed, it was determined, well, you know, that's really not the best way to take care of these, you know, uh, spring features because, you know, it's been, they look pretty aesthetically pleasing. So we should really just, and they have other value as well. So we should just, you know, not stop you know, prohibit swimming in there so they're not just destroyed for the, the future generation. So that seems to have helped quite a bit. That was my first time I'd ever seen them. And uh, from what I was told, it can be a, you know, a very popular attraction with as many as like 150 people kind of gathering around during the sort of the middle of the day, you know, in the high season. But uh, yeah, another reason, I guess, to uh, go at it from the, the north side where um in the evening like i did because uh, yeah i had it all to myself it was pretty uh pretty neat to uh get to enjoy that yeah you want you want to tell the story about the drunk guy that hit you with the bear spray because i thought that was pretty funny yeah yeah i was taking a kind of a scenic route over so when you go let's see yeah when you start from the lake louise area there at, at the trailhead that's mentioned in the video yeah i spent spent my first night at uh that first campsite there. And then on the second day, I had heard about a really uh, nice alternate route called Packers Pass, which angles towards the uh, the lodge that is uh, another really popular destination for people that want to go horseback and have maybe a more comfortable backcountry experience in that way. So anyway, after circling around this particular uh, trail um, that started on Packers Pass, I was coming back to join up with the main trail and I came across a, a pair of uh, young guys that were kind of uh, cutting loose. I think they had a bottle of wild turkey or something. And uh, yeah, so they were they were they were offering me some. I mean, they were nice enough, you know. And they were they were um, you know um, generous, you know, wanting to share. But you know, it's that's that's not something that I that I partake take in like off the trail or on the trail. So you know, I politely declined, and then. Uh, later on in our conversation, I guess they had lost the safety off of their bear spray. 
and uh yeah so he was reaching into his pocket or something and accidentally uh yeah fired off some of the you know the intense pepper spray that is uh, bear spray yeah yeah and i guess the wind was was right to for it to blow just a little bit in my face and yeah fortunately i had my sunglasses on it probably would have been more painful without the sunglasses but yeah i was able to feel it a little more like when i was sweating later in the day um, but nothing that really cramped my style you know um, <laughs> but yeah it's just a good lesson to uh yeah uh, make sure you don't lose your safety and make sure that uh you know the safety's on when it when it should be on and uh yeah, I guess off when it should be off, you know, if you ever have to use a product like that. <laughs> Man, t did, did you see any bears when you were uh, hiking the Sawback? That was actually my first time uh, ever seeing grizzlies, like, outside of, you know, outside of the comfort of, like, a bus, you know. Like, I, I saw, my uncle and I saw one in Glacier uh, from the shuttle bus. But, uh, yeah, that's not the same as being solo in the backcountry and then seeing a grizzly there. In this case, uh, she had a couple of cubs with her also. And this had happened in an area that I had heard um, was having the grizzly activity. I think it's called Baker Lake. That uh, there's kind of a valley that's um, southeast of Baker Lake the, before you get going towards the, like the, I forget what that area is called, that next wildflower campground, I think it's, I think was where I stayed the, the second night. And anyhow, I had just started playing music out of my phone as a sort of security device. You know, I, I wouldn't ordinarily do that because it's kind of rude, you know, to to be, um, you know, blasting music in the backcountry. But in this case, as a solo hiker, I just wanted to give the bear some extra warning, right? And, uh, yeah, it wasn't uh, more than 10 minutes after I started doing that that, uh, sure enough, the uh, I saw a grizzly bear head, you know, looking at me from – it was a safe distance away. I was never, never really felt in danger, really. Um, but yeah, it was a good hundred yards off, at least, I guess. And uh, yeah, it was obviously a grizzly face. So that's when I um, got out my monopod and uh, yeah, set up my, uh, my, I guess, sort of filming equipment, and uh, was able to to get some some decent video. Not, you know, not the best that uh, you know you have, you've ever seen, but uh, it was definitely a, exciting to capture that moment, no doubt. Yeah, you know, it's coming back to me now because you had some phenomenal video of the grizzly, which I, I actually asked you how you filmed it because I was so curious, which you generously shared me the technique, which I can put a link to. Uh, and you, I think you called it the Ken Burns effect, right? But now I recall uh, your great video of the bears. Did, did you have a, I mean, how are the insects? Because I, I go to Canada every summer and if we're there up in, you know, pretty much June, July, August, the insect can be pretty brutal. How, how are they for your hike? For this hike, it wasn't really an issue. I think it was cold enough overnight to sort of keep the bugs at bay. I can't re really remember that being an issue. I don't know how much the smoke. Do you think the smoke affects the bugs at all? I would, I would definitely think that would have an impact. I'd be surprised if it didn't, actually. So that may have helped you a lot. But you, you were there kind of yeah. later. In, you were late, later in the season. You were late August, early September, right? Yeah, and I think I, I mentioned this in, in the video, some, something to the effect of, well, maybe, you know, this late in August at the less popular time for uh, at least Canadian backpackers to want to go and uh, take on a, a trip like this. So that might have been a factor in the, the lesser crowds that I uh, enjoyed.
uh, I mean, you know, or the less competition for permits. You think the sawback is just not that well known? Because I, until I saw your video, I'd never heard of it. So, I mean, you think it's possible people just don't know about it that much? Well, it's definitely something that's recommended on their website, and that's how I originally found out about it. I was looking for an alternative to some of the more popular options that are on the south side of the Trans-Canada Highway. I forget what that area is called. It's because it kind of, um, I, I know that, that there's the Mount Assiniboine area, which was my first trip in the Canadian Rockies. That was really fantastic. And that goes into a couple of, it goes, it kind of dips in and out of a provincial park and kind of goes back and forth between Banff and uh, I forget the name of the provincial park. It might be Kootenai. I can't remember, but uh, yeah. So I, that's kind of the, another desirable area that's that's in higher demand but that was actually closed last year due to some wildfire issues with uh, Kootenai um, provincial park there that, that goes through there so um, does that answer your question <laughs> I'm sorry I lost track of the question yeah yeah well I mean I, I actually have a better question for you what, what did you enjoy most about the Sawback Trail well, certainly the the two passes, the uh, the Mystic Pass was the second one, and the first pass I know it was between the Johnston Creek area and the Wildflower Campground area. I, I can't remember now what the name of that is off the top of my head, um, but uh, but yeah, along that route, you yeah, there's two different passes that have the exceptional views with uh, some alpine lakes nearby, especially if you go if you take the spur trail uh just what is that just east of mystic pass there's that uh trail that goes up to uh mystic lake where the where i actually was the spot where i found the berries and uh yeah it's it's just a short side trail that i could definitely recommend there's no camping there because because yeah that, that's worth mentioning too actually as far as whether you're in glacier banff or really anywhere in uh in grizzly country within you know a, a provincial or a, or a national park i mean yeah there's there's a reason why they have designated camping areas right where you or typically yeah, yeah there's you know, there's a limited number of campsites and then the, you know, the 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 food storage there's special rules around that whether there's a bear box or whether you have to hang it from a tree branch or a bear pole um, but yeah, there's there's good reason for that. Just because they want to, the the park service wants to just be safe and make sure that those food smells are just being confined to those smaller areas, right? As a, as opposed to the sort of uh, the the open sort of uh, dispersed camping that you that we would enjoy at places like uh, um, Yosemite and uh, and many others. And, and with that comes the nice benefit, especially as a solo backpacker, of uh, meeting people at the campsite. Because, you know, when there's just the one sort of shared dining area, yeah, you end up, typically you end up meeting uh, other backpackers. Unless you have the campsite all to yourself, which was the case for me on the last couple of nights. And that might have been an effect of, you know, the heavier uh, wildfire smoke or maybe just, I don't know, something with... Uh, the uh, the weather forecast. I'm not I'm not sure. I guess people could bail on their permits after you know booking out those sites, but uh, who knows? I'm not sure. 
Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, it sounds like a, a similar experience to the Appalachian Trail with just a lot less people, right? Where you can meet people at the campsites, which, especially if you're solo, that's got to add a lot to your experience. Um, hey, so do you have any? I mean, if if there were a few takeaways, maybe maybe a one or two th- or three suggestions you could give anybody that is thinking about the Sawback Trail. I mean, it sounds like the permitting, the permitting, it sounds like you definitely need to get ahead of. Is that correct? Well, I mean, I showed up just, I think, three or four days before I wanted to enter in. And the the guy there with his, uh, you know, computer system, the ranger with his computer system was able to uh, set me up pretty well. You know, and there was there was some days that had. I don't know, that were pretty short, like seven kilometers and then others that were 18 kilometers or more. But, um, yeah, I, the, I mean, yeah, definitely you want to have your permit, um, in hand before you go. Um, but, uh, you know, and it might be different if you go in July or June. Um, I mean, as far as advice for sawback hikers, I would say, you know, bring your bear spray and preferably, you know, don't go solo. I mean, it's not recommended that, uh, that people go out solo in, uh, in, in grizzly country like that. Cause you are putting, you know, are you putting yourself at greater risk typically? Um, so yeah. Um, obviously I was taking a risk, um, there my, myself, but felt confident enough in my abilities that I would, that I would be fine with it. Yeah. Um, but you, you had your music speaker with you. So you're blasting music. So that's like having another person talking to you, right? I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Y- yeah. You, you, yeah. It's, it's, that's, that's a fair point. But, uh, as far as like groups versus solo, I, I, I remember hearing some statistic, at least at, uh, one of the Canadian parks where like bears have never attacked a group of four people or more. And then, mm, yeah. um, strength in numbers, strength in numbers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, the, the attack, the attacks, I guess have been, you increase your chances of getting attacked if you have, you know, three, two, or I guess mostly at most of the uh, one, but the, they're also very good up in Canada about having uh, seasonal closures in areas where they know that there's going to be grizzlies. They will, uh, and they do this at Glacier too. I mean, the first year that I went to Glacier with my uncle, that uh, 50 mountain uh, campground had been closed for a good month or more because of the grizzly activity. And then fortunately for us, uh, it was able to open back up uh, just a few days before we went on our trip. And I remember, I'll never forget, one of the guys there at the at the 50 Mountain Campground had a full-on an electric fence around his tent. So he could he had packed in like a 70,000-watt <laughs> volt or whatever, 70,000-volt whatever, you know, fence and strung it up around his, uh, you know, typical, you know, nylon backpacking tent. <laughs> That's funny. Well, you know, I don't think yeah, you right? should be, I, I don't think you should be overly concerned, Amos, because you're a professional chef, which means you've got all these extra ingredients that probably make you smell especially good to a grizzly bear, right? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I'm I'm pretty uh, good about uh, hanging my food as well. You know, I'm, I'm pretty well practiced, even in areas where I don't really have to hang my food. You know, I guess it becomes more of a rodent hang in those situations. But uh, yeah, um, but, but yeah. Uh, I do like to put together my own dehydrated meals that, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, something, some of the ingredients I will purchase out, right. You know, it's, I think the, the vegetables are typically the, 
the thing that's hardest to come by in the back country. So that's something that, uh, um, if, if, uh, if you don't want to dehydrate them yourself, I mean, it's certainly, um, easy enough to order those off Amazon, uh, whatever type of, uh, dehydrated, dehydrated vegetables you would want to have, um, in your meals. Hey, so let's talk about your food for a, for a second, because, uh, you sent me a link and my daughter and I watched your, um, you know, the way you prepare your food. And that it was really interesting, right? Because, uh, um, I mean, there were a lot of ingredients you put in there that I was not familiar with. Um, do you want to yeah. talk about, talk about your go-to backcountry meal and then some of the special specialty meals that you create for your uh, trips? Sure. Yeah. Well, I kind of rotate between a variety of, uh, yeah, vegetables. Basically there's like the vegetable component or the fruit component, I guess if it's a breakfast, like a, like a cereal type of thing, um, like a hot cereal. Um, and then there's the, the starch and then there's the protein, which is typically, you know, I could, well, tear up some beef jerky or whatever other type of jerky, or even use some, uh, textured vegetable protein. And, uh, yeah, along with that, I mean, the starch could be, of course, you, you're probably familiar with the, uh, the powdered mashed potatoes, you know, I, I think that's a common staple amongst, amongst backpackers. But, oh, it's uh, so, well, so easy, right? right? So easy to cook. Absolutely. And the same can be said for, for couscous as well. Um, and then I'll mix that up with, uh, I've, I've gone through the trouble to dehydrate cooked rice that, uh, doesn't doesn't uh, rehydrate quite as easily as the powdered mashed potatoes or the couscous, but I found it still works pretty well, especially if you could give it a little extra time to, you know, you know to absorb that water. Um, but yeah, I've gone I've gone through the, some of the extra effort to dehydrate um, my proteins as well as my vegetables on my own. So it just kind of sometimes it just depends kind of up uh, like what I have in the fridge. I've even gone and dehydrated like leftover lentil soup till it gets down to like little crumbly bits, you know, that I can rehydrate easily enough. Um, so yeah, it's, it really varies quite a bit. I mean, I, I do like my curry powder and my powdered coconut cream and powdered like dairy cream. I mean, uh, as we know, as, as backpackers, it's, it's a good thing to be able to get more value there as far as calories per ounce. So I find that the uh, yeah the powdered cream, whether it be coconut or dairy, uh, really helps with that. There's uh, dehydrated cheese products that uh, work pretty well. Also, um, maybe you've seen the sort of um, Parmesan crisp type things that that are available at some grocery stores, like especially uh, the Kroger or what is the the Utah version of, of Kroger? Um, yeah, they carry uh, uh, some ingredients like that that. Uh, work out real well for backpacking. So it's kind of a mashup of, uh, of, uh, different things. <laughs> you, you know, one, one thing I'm sure about Amos is that you're eating better than me in the back country. That, that is the one takeaway that I'm getting here for sure. Well, well, if we ever get to go backpacking together, I'd be happy to, uh, share, share with you. Um, you know, I'm, I'm happy, I'm happy to, I mean, it's, I mean, it's still dehydrated. So those that I guess haven't been uh, initiated into that sort of eating, um, it's still dehydrated food. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like to have that control. And let's face it, you know, if you're buying the you know the mountain house or the backpackers pantry, I mean, the the cost adds up, right? I mean, 
Um, obviously, I'm spending, yeah. you know, I, I can spend a fair bit of time putting my own meals together. So I guess it just depends upon uh, how much time one has to really spend on that type of stuff. And, uh, yeah, obviously, the uh, those other options, excuse me, those other options are convenient, you know. Amos, do you have any tips for novices? Somebody that has never uh, kind of prepared a backcountry meal. Maybe they just go grab a uh, mountain house or maybe they just go and grab a, one of those little prepackaged chickens from Kroger or one of the uh, grocery stores. Do you have any tips for them? Well, one tip that I thought was worth even making a video for was with eggs on the, on the backcountry. Uh, both uh, my buddy Anthony and I that I was hiking, both of us enjoyed eggs. So what we would do in the trail towns, I think we would go and uh, split a 12 pack or there was even a couple little like farm stands. I think there was one of them was in Massachusetts, if I remember correctly. And um, they would sell like duck eggs or fresh chicken eggs or something like that. And something I got into was even with my jet boil, which granted is not ideal for, for hard boiling eggs. Right. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, of course, I could boil those eggs in the trail towns as well. But uh, yeah, if I if I wanted to, I could, uh, and I did yesterday actually for breakfast. I I boiled, I hard boiled um, a couple eggs, and I guess in a conventional sort of jet boil, you can fit as many as like four, or maybe more at a time. Um, and you kind of got to keep refilling, you know, topping off the water because it boils off. Because let's face it, there's only, at least my old school jet boil, it's only like two settings, like zero or 100%, right? Extreme heat, right? Yeah, yeah. It's just like nothing or, you know, uh, yeah, full blast. So in, in any case, so I've taken hard boiled eggs and like any grocery store will have like those little mayonnaise and mustard packets. So I, what I got into is I, I made uh, a couple times, I made uh, egg salad on the trail with, uh, yeah, those mayonnaise and mustard packets that'll be available at most any grocery store and maybe add some salt and pepper on top of that. And uh, yeah, that was a, that was a real treat um, as far as, uh, you know, being creative and in, in the back country. Um, so that's, I guess, a simple sort of, uh, pointer that, that I can give for people that enjoy eggs, you know? Yeah, no, that's, that's, I mean, that's a good one. Cause I think uh, a lot of people are always looking for, you know, better ways to take food into the wilderness, especially that's lightweight. Um, hey, so on the topic of taking things into the wilderness, um, I love to ask this question to all the people I speak with. Do you have a, uh, like, if you had to give me your top five most cherished pieces of backpacking gear, or just things you take in the wilderness. What would oh, they do? sure, sure. Let's see. Well, I mean, up until recently, I can say that uh, the the Monfroto off-road walking stick was oh. uh, one of my hmm. one of my favorite pieces of gear. And that one, yeah. Well, it's, it was a walking stick. I, I think I read about it initially in uh, Backpacker magazine. Okay. And uh, anyway, it's 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 made by or it was made by a, a company that makes photography gear, right? They're not really in the business of selling hiking poles, but this was kind of their venture into that. So, yeah, it was light, these lightweight poles that are less than a pound, like, together, right? So nice and light. And then one of the poles had a camera mount 
on one of the uh, on the top of one of the hiking on the, the handle, you know, of one of the poles. So with that, yeah, that was my really my main sort of hiking pole slash camp, you know, monopod for a couple of years there. Unfortunately, uh, the that set of poles met its finally met its demise this past April. I gave it a bit of a beating on a particular hike I was I was enjoying and uh, um, yeah, and then as it so happens, they don't make this product anymore. But I'm hoping some other company might step up and. Uh, uh, you know, incorporate a, uh, a camera mount into their hiking poles because I think it's, I really enjoy the concept, you know, and the really, um, I think was able to, to get, to get a lot out of it, you know, um, even if these poles were, um, you know, more fragile with their lightweight aluminum or whatever they were made out of. But, no, uh, no, ge yeah. no gear, no gear lasts forever. That's for certain. Yeah, and I had, and trust me, I had it splinted up with a stick and duct tape, you know, to get me through the rest of that trip. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it had a good run. I had probably, you know, uh, more miles than uh, it was designed to handle, you know, that I put on do, those. But do, do you have but, anything else that uh, you're particularly attached to? Because I, you know, I definitely have my sort of top five pieces of gear. I'm always curious to hear what other people have to say there. Sure. Yeah. I mean, my, the, the tent that I mentioned earlier, the REI quarter dome has been treating me right. Even though I mean, all along the AT, I mean, there's a reason why that's a, you know, a popular uh, tent for, for through hikers is my understanding as well. Um, I have, I have and, one. I, I just want to go on record. I'm a fan and I do own one. So well nice. stated, well stated. Yeah. Even though the zip, one of the zippers is, is worn out and I probably should get a replacement yet. Yeah, still treating me well. The, um, see what else? I mean, my iPhone is what I've done the vast majority of my filming on. That said, I do have, uh, now I do have a, a Canon little camcorder that, uh, yeah, my last few trips I've been able to sort of upgrade my video quality with that a Canon Vixia HFR 800. If anybody's taking notes, it's, it's only about eight ounces. So granted that that's double the weight of the, uh, the smaller iPhone six that I carry, but, uh, yeah, it's, you know, the, the zoom is vastly superior and, uh, it's, uh, yeah, I got a certainly high, uh, a nicer, you know, sharper resolution. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, certainly the iPhone is, it's, it's a multi-use tool, right? Whether it be filming or taking pictures or listening to podcasts or using the other various bells and whistles that are there, you know, the, um, ebooks you know having an ebook instead of carrying a book you know i can read um a book off of uh that's been downloaded to my phone amos i gotta ask you how do you keep that charge though right if you're out there for five days you're reading books you're listening to podcasts you're taking pictures you, you must have a secret trick to keeping that thing charged indeed well it's uh it's not not so secret i've actually got a video my next video that's going to be publishing here shortly is uh my review of the solar panel that i was carrying <laughs> all along that sawback trail <laughs> so i, I think i think yeah when that posts uh this sunday and we're we're speaking uh actually on the summer solstice uh happy solstice by the way oh thank you yeah so coming up uh this weekend i'll be um uh publishing that to my channel so you can get some more details about that. 
but that said, I mean, I'm actually carrying, uh, I've actually made some changes to my uh, gear since then. I've, I've actually got a uh, an Anchor Power Source 10,000 or something like that. And it's, it's can recharge a phone, I think, five or six times. Wow. Um, it, it is, it, it's not the lightest piece of gear. I think it does weigh like about a pound or so, but uh, yeah. yeah, at least with that, I don't have to be depending or, you know, I don't have to be relying on there being sunshine. And uh, one of the, well, you'll, you'll see it in the review, but one of the drawbacks about the solar panel that I was carrying in uh, on the, the sawback trail there was that it doesn't include like that, that 14 ounce solar panel does not include the battery so i had to carry a, a separate little battery that's the logistics of that could be kind of a hassle um but uh of course now if i wanted to i could pair that anchor battery you know that holds five or six charges of a iphone um with the solar panel and then you know probably have a much easier time with things if i wanted to carry a two pound you know power you know charging the combo there but, um, yeah, so that, yeah, that, that, that's, that's a great tip. I will definitely be watching your video on that one. Excellent. Yeah. I hope, hope you like it. Um, yeah, I think, but again, with that type of device, um, yeah, for solar panel, I mean, it's really only helpful in an area where there's going to, where it's going to be getting sun, right? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, in the, in the South where we live, we got a lot of tree cover, which is kind of tougher, but, uh, you know, where you guys are in Utah, you're, probably getting a lot more sunlight than we are when you're on the trail. Um, hey, so l let me ask you, Amos, um, if I, you've obviously done a ton of hiking. One of the questions I always like to ask is, uh, you know, if you had a week or if you had a long weekend, let's call it a three or four day weekend, is it, what, what kind of trips would you recommend? What would you uh, suggest to the people that are listening? Well, let's see. I mean, as far as places that I've been, um, yeah, I mean, I could recommend uh, the Kessler Park here in the Canyonlands, not too far from here. Um, that's it's, another, being that it's a national park, it's, it is a situation where, yeah, I think the permits actually book out pretty far in advance these days. Um, it's, it's Utah, uh, Utah for the listeners, right? Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I think I may have missed, I think it might be Chesler Park. I can't remember if it's Kessler, I think it's Chesler Park, I can't remember, but it's really the most popular backpacking area of the Canyonlands, and there's good reason for that. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's a lot of nice little uh, features, uh, you know, just tremendous Red, Wa Red Rock Canyon country scenery going on there. And oh, there's yeah. uh, a water source within walking distance on the way to Druid Arch and various other features. Um, the Dark Canyon Wilderness, you could definitely recommend wow. that as well. That, you know, that but, one's, uh, go ahead. I was going to say, it's another one that I've never heard about. That That's why I always ask these questions, right? So another one that I knew nothing about. So please tell me more. Yeah, yeah, the Dark Canyon Wilderness. It's, uh, I'll, I'll send you a link later on, uh, Bird Shooter. But um, yeah, I, I can say that that's one of the video series I'm uh, more proud of, uh, the way I was able to put that together. That was actually, uh, believe it or not, a winter trip in uh, mid-March of awesome. 2017. Oh, um, okay. I was able to spend two nights starting from uh, what's called the Sundance Trailhead, and this actually overlaps with a longer trail. Maybe you've heard of the Hayduke Trail. Yeah, well, so wait, is, um, is the Sundance Trailhead near Sundance, Utah? 
Not no, actually. That can yeah, that that can be uh, confusing. Um, but uh, I'm not sure why they call it the Sundance uh, uh, Trailhead, but uh, it's down there, um, really quite remote. It's one of the more remote trailheads that is yeah, well south of a place called Hanksville, which is one of the uh, I guess which is really the last town you drive through before getting into that part of Utah that's kind of down towards the Henry Mountains and Lake Powell and uh, um, the Glen Canyon Wilderness. But, uh, yeah, the beauty of uh, this particular hike, starting from the Sundance Trailhead, is uh, is that at least the way that I did it, I, I took uh, two nights of sort of a, a base camp there near, like, now, as you walk down into the canyon, it's it's – it gets it, t- it does take some getting used to because those that are doing mountain hikes, you know, right? You you hike uphill first and then you camp, or typically, right? And then you then you hike downhill back to the car. But it's it's reverse, right? Going into a canyon, so it's 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 a different type of a of a hike in that sense for those of you that are used to the sort of uh, alpine lakes or just straight mountain, you know, type yeah, hiking. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, the scenery is really special. I saw I remember I was able to spot some fossils and. It gave me the sense. This is probably not a fair comparison, um, but uh, I've, having not really experienced, I, I don't have a lot of experience with the Grand Canyon, but it, I had the sense that it was maybe well, it reminded me of the Grand Canyon, but there was nobody there type of thing. There was it's just. I mean, I saw the one Hey Duke through hiker there, and otherwise, yeah, I didn't see anybody there in the two nights I was there, and I was able during that sort of zero day you know between the um the two nights i was able to walk all the way down to the colorado river and, and back there was uh it's close enough uh, that particular part of dark canyon wilderness is close enough that that one can go and do that so that was pretty special and the yeah. uh hmm. go ahead I, I was just gonna say you know i haven't hiked a ton in utah so i'm very interested in you know getting your opinion on these uh these areas um yeah, another part or another nice spot in Dark Canyon that I really enjoyed. It's the the series. It's the set of the sort of the next set of videos that I'm working on. Actually, is a longer trip in the Dark Canyon wilderness. That's actually a loop that goes over three or four nights. I think I think it's 42 miles, and basically you start from uh, a place called the Wooden Shoe Trailhead, then you come out the other side. Uh, what's it called? The name for the, of the other trailhead escapes me at, at the moment. It'll probably occur to me here in, in, in a little bit. But um, in any case, yeah, you basically hike down one tributary canyon that uh, eventually feeds into the main dark canyon, and then you hike up dark canyon, then then back out in kind of like a horseshoe shape, and then uh, um, eventually, which is you actually drive through the Bears Ears, the Bears Ears Buttes. There, you, you, there's a road that cuts like right between the ears um, to access that area. Um, so, yeah, that was a pretty special one for me, too. And, uh, yeah, there were a few other people that I saw there. Um, uh, yeah, the the name of that uh, other trailhead escapes me. But, uh, uh, yeah, I'll have to get back to you when I uh, finish uh, <laughs> working through the, uh, the footage from that and, and put that together. But, uh, yeah, that's if you're talking about trips that are three or four nights, um, that would be one that I can recommend as well if you're in, or for those of you that are into desert hikes. The the water can be um, a bit iffy, 
but um, yeah, there's some arches along the way, and even some uh, uh, some Anastasi or uh, ancestral oh, ruins. Ruins. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. That that uh, people that uh, you know, ancient people that used to live there. So um, yeah, it's a it's a good sort of another good sort of off the radar, you know, further off the radar spot, you know, compared to um, the other national parks of uh, Utah that can be. Uh, pretty crowded, you know, these days in this day and age. Yeah. Hey man. So the listeners, how can they keep up with your travels on the trail? Do you want to plug your uh, YouTube channel and you probably have other ways too, right? Cause you've got some great material. If, uh, if someone's looking for some, you know, some hikes, they may not have thought of. And I think the sawback, which we talked about earlier is a great example. Indeed. Well, yeah, certainly uh, backpacker diaries, two words is a easy way to find me on YouTube, what I've been up to. And then also if you want to see what I've been up to more recently and you have a Facebook account, the, uh, there's a Facebook group of the same name where you can, uh, if you want to, you can see what I was up to this week and last week, you know, cause I'll, that's a, a, a sort of a faster sort of platform where I can, you know, share photos without uh, all that production that's involved. I mean, admittedly I'm about, I think eight months behind <laughs> on, uh, you know, I'm working through what I did like last fall at this point, as far as the, uh, the, the videos go. So, um, yeah, for a more up-to-date, uh, sort of action, uh, the backpacker diary or the group on Facebook called backpacker diaries is, uh, uh, another thing that I can, uh, recommend there. I'm, I'm going to it right now and, uh, clicking the, follow button here. So I got gotcha. you. And, cool. and I also appreciate Amos as well that, uh, it takes a lot of time to produce those videos. So I can understand how you would get a little behind trying to keep up with them. That makes complete sense to me. It's a lot. Yeah. Of yeah. You know, you, yeah, you know how it goes from uh, producing podcasts. So yeah, it, yes. it takes some time to, uh, to edit and, uh, mix and, um, yeah, I mean, I use iMovie for uh, the videos and uh, lately, especially for that Sawback trail series, I was running like all of the sound through a, another program called Audacity that you might be familiar with. Oh yeah, it's, sure. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's a free one. And uh, yeah, I'm still, I mean, for any of you that uh, go back and watch my older videos, there's definitely um, a progression in quality there. Um, you know, it's, they it started out pretty rough, but like like anything, you know, more practice makes makes uh, I guess you know a better product. So um, yeah, as I learn more how to how to do it well and get better equipment, right? That only uh, um, boosts the quality. So that's that's something that's rewarding to me when I go back and look at it, you know, to to see yeah, I guess how it's getting better. And so I just wanted to point that out too that some of my older videos are kind of you know rough for quality. You know, it's it's part of the process. If you go back and listen to the early versions of my podcast, I'm sure it's no different. Yeah. So, you know, you grow yeah, yeah. in what you do. That's part of uh, that's part of experience. So, Amos, great to talk to you. I mean, I've, I've really enjoyed watching your videos. Um, if you ever get to the East Coast, man, definitely look me up. And um, I'll look forward to the uh, the next release. What's it, what's it going to be? Well, I've got, I mean, well, there's the, uh, the, uh, solar panel review that I told you about. And then after that, 
there's a uh, just a, sh- a quick little overnight that I did in the San Rafael Reef Wilderness Area that uh, we'll be publishing the week after that. Um, so yeah, after spending a, a whole summer doing Appalachian Trail and Alpine Lakes wilderness stuff, I was uh, yeah happy to get back to the, the Red Rock Canyon country. Um, and out of so, the yeah. humi- out of the humidity, I'm guessing as well. Indeed, yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> I figured. Absolutely. Hey, well, thank thanks for being on the show, and um, you know, I lo- hopefully we can talk again here sometime soon, if not hike together. I hope so, Bird Shooter. I had a great time, and I was honored to be a part of it. Well, I guarantee you cook better than me in the backcountry too. So, uh, all the more reason for us to get together if you come to the East Coast. Absolutely, sounds good. I appreciate it. The invite. All right. Well, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Bird Shooter. Thank you for listening to the Into Backpacking Podcast. This is your host, Bird Shooter, wishing you the best for your travels on the trail. To subscribe to this show, visit iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. Give us a thumbs up or a positive comment while you're there. You can also download shows directly from intobackpacking.com. Just click the podcast tab on the main menu. Music for this show is provided by Jarrus under a Creative Commons license and is titled Hillbilly Anarchy. This show is a production of Into Backpacking and is copyrighted by Into Ventures Inc. For more information on this podcast or to provide feedback or comments on this or future shows, please visit us at intobackpacking.com. That's the letter N, the number two, backpacking.com.